0: will help you love what you do in the future. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org/skills.
1: Live Nation presents Concert Week.
0: Take your business further at tmobilecom slash now. Wind power is big, and it's getting bigger. Wind generates about 10% of the electricity in the United States, even more in parts of Western Europe, and companies like Vestas Wind Systems sell billions and billions of dollars of giant wind turbines every year. To a large extent, This giant global industry was created by a few tinkerers in rural Denmark in the 1970s. They weren't PhDs. They weren't running venture-backed startups. They were students and farmers and teachers who were reacting to the skyrocketing price of electricity and trying to figure out a way to make clean power in a windy place. Maybe the most important tinkerer was Henrik Steesdale. He started out as a farm kid who liked to build stuff. And today, almost 50 years later, he's still building. I'm Jacob Goldstein, and this is What's Your Problem, the show where I talk to people who are trying to make technological progress. My guest today is Henrik Steesdale. Over the past several decades, Henrik has solved lots of big wind power problems. His latest is this. How do you build giant floating wind turbines cheaply enough that you can have offshore wind power anywhere in the world. Henrik got a start in wind power back in the 1970s when he was just out of high school. The price of oil had gone way up, and he wanted to help his parents figure out a cheaper source of electricity for their farm. So his dad took him up to a small college near the farm where a few people were trying to build a wind turbine to help power the college. So we went up and saw that. It was fascinating.
2: It was fascinating because of, so to speak, the spirit of it that they had an issue, then they did something about it. It was really sort of uh, in, intriguing and, and exciting. Uh, uh, when you when you have this attitude, at least the perceived problems are not that big. So when we came home from that visit, we immediately went to work and built a little rotor that uh, we mounted on, on a water pipe so that you could hold it in your hand. And then you could go out in the wind and have it spin and get a feel. I still have it actually it's it's a little more than a meter diameter
0: okay and so what is it? It's like a metal pipe with a with a with the arms on it or
2: yeah it, it looks like a two bladed propeller
0: okay and did you have a little welding shop or something? How do you even build that? No, that was just built out of wood
2: okay so and and then the the shaft was bolted to the wooden propeller okay. And then you could take it and go out in the wind and it didn't work very very well. (laughs) And then we experimented with the shape of the blade and suddenly we got it right. And then uh, it just went mad. You know, you went without it was a windy day (laughs) as many days are windy here. And then it started rotating and then it kind of ran away in your hand and spun with many hundred revolutions per minute, about six inches from your nose.
0: This is an exciting moment.
2: It is. I can tell you, uh, if you do that, you sh- actually shouldn't try this at home, because once you do that, then you are hooked for life. So based on that, and given that I had some time before I was called off for the army, I, um, I said, could we do something bigger? Something bigger, like to generate power? It's something bigger to learn more, but just okay. as an experimental device. So you're just kind of playing
0: at this point?
2: We were just kind of playing it was mostly me my dad helped me every now and then but he was working and didn't have much time um so what i did was that since it was just for experimental purposes i built a frame on the farm wagon and then i could run the wagon out in the field when it was windy and do experiments with it and then i could take it back into the barn again when i was done
0: yeah so this is like a wagon that you hitch to the back of a tractor or something.
2: Yeah, yeah. pull pull it out with a tractor, and then we could uh, we could test it out there. Yeah, I w- was able to measure that on a windy day, this little rotor could produce significantly more electricity than what we used on the farm. Huh. Then you can say we're onto something, and based on that, I I said couldn't I build a turbine that should power the whole farm even when it was not that windy, uh, mounted on a tower and. and built a genuine wind turbine, and that is what I did. I bought a welding machine and taught myself to weld so I could build the tower. We bought a a lathe so that I could turn the shaft and so on Uh at the junkyard. It cost us uh, at that time 15 cents a kilo.
0: So you're saying it was at the junkyard, so they were selling it like for scrap. When you say 15 cents a kilo, they're selling it like by the pound essentially. Yes, exactly. Fantastic. And but they worked. You took it home and you plugged it in, and it worked.
2: No, 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 no. I I, it was from 1914, so um, (laughs) I took it home and and made it work. Let's put it like that. But once it worked, then uh, I could Uh use it for this uh for these things. So it all worked out. And in 78, we were able to install the
0: turbine, and it ran for 13 years. So you build this tower for your family farm. How do you come to license it to this, What is was then a you know local little crane manufacturer, Vestas?
2: Yeah. So um, it was actually not my design here for the family farm that was licensed. Okay. Because there was a, 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 something I had welded myself. I'd built the blades myself. I had found old equipment at the junkyard uh, and so on. That was not licensable. You could not base a production
0: <laughs> on that. You, you can't license buying a 50-year-old lathe and fixing it up. Yeah, Aye, aye,
2: aye. That doesn't work. But I happened to meet a local blacksmith who was also wind interested. And there were a lot of people who were interested in, in wind at the time. And he was not a bookish person. He he, was, he didn't read or write well. But he was a very, very good craftsman. And then gradually we figured out we could work together in the way that I could design it for him. And then he could, in return, do some machining for my turbine that I didn't have equipment for. So I ended up he, and he, he didn't have any money. I didn't have any money. He wanted it still done from new parts because he was already then thinking about doing it professionally. So we, of course, had an issue. How would we get, get such a thing funded? But then I discovered purely by chance that there was a new sort of subsidy that had been created for inventors within renewables. And I wrote to the government body that arranged this. And then they actually wrote back and said, we'll send over somebody to speak with you. And then a very nice person came over, spoke with him. And then two weeks later, I had a check for about $10,000 in the mail. And then, then it was kind of, now we had the means. Now we could do it. So I designed a turbine and he built it. And he built it and installed it at his workshop which was out in the countryside and it worked and then we kind of said hmm, could be there's re- it actually something here that really could become a business so purely by chance a, a friend of ours was a private uh, aviator he had a, uh, the use of a small plane and was flying i think m- mostly for pleasure and he had flown over vestas and had seen that they had a wind turbine installed it was not operating, but one could see that they were interested in wind. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing this.
0: Just to be clear, he'd flown over the sort of headquarters of this local company called Vestas. Yes. Okay. Uh
2: huh. And then I basically pick, picked up the phone and called them and said, uh, we know that you're interested in wind. Shouldn't you get a license to a proper turbine? Uh-huh. Which was a, a, a little cheeky, you can say. <laughs> but they were... Um, Interesting enough to come over and have coffee.
0: They were a company that had made farm equipment and cranes and that sort of thing, yes, right? They yes. made sort of. Yes. Yeah, okay. They
2: were a couple of hundred people uh, and um, and
0: they were interested.
2: So we made a deal whereby they would pay a certain amount for each turbine. And, uh, and that's how they got started in wind. That was by taking out this license and starting to do the production of our machine.
0: And Vestas became. A giant, right? A global giant in making wind turbines.
2: Yes. Yes. They very quickly, they were they were really good. They very quickly uh, got a significant share of the market here in Denmark. And when then uh, the California market started booming around 1983, um, due to uh, some uh, tax credit arrangements that were implemented to motivate people to invest in wind, um, they were very well positioned to go in and take a, a good part of that market. And that is what they did in California. I
0: remember, I happened to grow up in California in the 1980s, and I remember there was a wind farm, a bunch of wind turbines you would see east of San Francisco. When when we were driving to San Francisco, were those based on your design, those, those turbines?
2: There may have been. 40 different manufacturers. Ah. So you may well have seen some of our turbines, and you will surely have seen a wide range of other turbines. If they were running and operating every day, they would have been ours. (laughs) I'm just joking. (laughs) uh...
0: The ones that were spinning (laughs) were the ones that you built.
2: The ones were spinning, yes.
0: (laughs) Henrik worked with Vestas for several years. He helped put the company on a path to become one of the biggest wind companies in the world. Today, Vesta sells around $15 billion worth of turbines every year. He went on to work for another wind company where he helped build the world's first offshore wind turbines in the early 1990s. He retired in 2014, and then he unretired in 2016 and started his own company. And today, he's still at the frontier of wind power, trying to solve a new set of problems. That's after the break. You probably think it's too soon to join AARP, right? Well, let's take a minute to talk about it. Where do you see yourself in 15 years? More specifically, your career, your health, your social life. What are you doing now to help you get there? There are tons of ways for you to start preparing today for your future with AARP. That dream job you've dreamt about? Sign up for AARP reskilling courses to help make it a reality. How about that active lifestyle you've only spoken about from the couch? AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way. Connect with your community through AARP volunteer events. So it's safe to say it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, health, and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash wisefriend. Okay, 10 seconds. How many things can you name that are always growing? The universe, easy one. Um, My kids, so far. uh, To-do lists. uh, This month, my sugar snap peas. I know that's not always. I know I'm out of time, but I'm going to give you one more. Businesses on Shopify. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. There are key moments in every endeavor. I ask pretty much everybody I interview on this show about their key moments, their breakthroughs, their failures, their turnarounds, and Shopify can be there for you at all of your key moments. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash problem. Go to Shopify.com slash problem now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash problem.
3: Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices, anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G the hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at TMobile.com/unconventional awards. That's tmobilecom mobilecom unconventional Awards. I'll save you a seat. Now,
0: back to the show. When Henrik retired in 2014, he thought he'd go back to his roots as a tinkerer, but at a bigger scale. He didn't want to work for a company, he didn't want to run a company, but he wanted to keep working on offshore wind. Offshore wind is great. You get nice, steady winds out in the ocean, you can put the turbines out of sight in the sea, but still relatively close to dense populations on the coast. But there was this big problem with offshore wind that Henrik wanted to help solve. Offshore wind turbines are built on platforms that have to sit on the ocean floor, and that limits where you can put them.
2: They can go out to maybe 60 meters water depth, but most of the world has much deeper waters than 60 meters. We have been able Uh to build up a very big offshore wind industry in northwestern Europe because the North Sea, that water is quite shallow, and you can build very large offshore wind farms out there. We have built very large offshore wind farms. But most of the world, you can't do that because it gets too deep.
0: There is a potential solution to this. Build turbines on floating platforms. If you can do that, you could have offshore wind basically off of any coast in the world. It would be amazing. People have been working on this problem for years, but it's hard. Offshore wind turbines are gigantic, like almost as tall as the Eiffel Tower. And when Henrik looked at the work people were doing on floating wind and reflected back on his decades in the wind business, he saw this one problem in particular. People were not paying enough attention to making floating wind turbines cheap enough to be widely adopted.
2: I was just slightly annoyed that they were not doing it in an industrial manner. Uh Industrialization is the way that things get to be cheap. Uh So wind started out as being More costly than fossil fuels. Now it is cheaper than fossil fuels. Solar power is the same. It was very costly 20 years ago. Now it's much cheaper than fossil fuels. And there you could, of course, ask yourself, how? What is the difference? And it's a mixture of technology development that we got better at designing the stuff. But much more importantly, that we got professional in the manufacturing of the equipment. Uh So it was made in syrup.
0: Essentially, economies of scale rather than of sort scale. of craftspeople building them one by one, figuring out how to exactly use factory mass production to bring down costs. Yes. As
2: you and I sit here and talk, I, I have an iPhone. I think I paid $500 for it. It has, you know, as people say, more computing power than NASA had when they sent people to the moon. Yeah. It's a small uh, video camera. It, it can show films. It can do everything. I yeah. paid $500 for it. If I was going to get the only one in the world, <laughs> I'll probably pay $50 million. but I pay yeah. only $500 because a million or millions are made.
0: Hundreds of millions, I'm sure. Yeah, so so that's the problem with floating offshore wind turbines, is they're making them one at a time, and as a result, they're exactly. extraordinarily expensive, yes. prohibitively yes. expensive.
2: Yes, and I thought maybe I could do something that was suited for serial production. I thought I don't want to run a company. Make it, maybe I could make something that I just kind of presented to the world and say, here are some good ideas. Here's a design. Go out and do it. So that's what I spent the first years of my my retirement on was to develop things like that. At the end of the day, I had to realize that that would not work because they did not want something that was so to speak open source.
0: You were you were just trying to make a design that anybody could use. The big developers, the people
2: actually making wind farms happen, they did not want something that was in the open source and was a free for all. They wanted uh-huh. a. Firm and fixed design that had a cost associated with it. Uh, uh-huh. And that meant that in the end, I had to run a company. I had to establish a company. So that's what I did.
0: What's happening with the, with the floating wind project?
2: That's going well. We set out with this idea of industrializing so that we simply took up the challenge of making a very big steel structure in a factory. Um, the wind turbine itself is a very big steel structure. Each blade is uh, significantly longer than a football field. Yeah. Um, and they could say, how can you ever build such a big machine 250 meters tall in a factory? And the answer is you don't. You build <laughs> the components uh-huh. and then you just put it together out in the field.
0: Yeah.
2: And we simply took inspiration from that, saying, okay, what we have been doing there, and I myself had the good luck to be part of that, was to figure out a way to do big structures but still have the benefit of mass production. Let's use that thinking also for the floating foundation. So that's what we have done. All the components are made in a factory. We have then figured out a way to connect them in the port so that they actually end up constructing a whole floating structure. But all the components were made in a factory benefiting from this mass production. So um, we have had good luck to have some big power companies uh, fund the project for us. They are not co-owners of the company, but they helped us pay for the prototype. So we built the components in 20 and launched it in 21, and it has been operating since then off the coast of Norway.
0: Right now, it's floating out in the sea, spinning and generating power even as we speak?
2: Yes. As, as, we, as you and I are sitting here talking, it's out in the sea at 200 meters water depth, producing today on the order of three megawatts of power all the time. It it powers something like a 1,000 households, as you and I sit here and talk.
0: Your goal with the project was to get to mass production, right? Is that happening? Yes.
2: No, offshore wind is, and that goes also for floating, is somewhat burdened with very long planning permission times. Uh So what we're doing now is that we, we are building a small demo project with a number of turbines, but much larger than the first one. That's a really big machine, uh, 236 meters diameter, Mm. and it'll go off the north coast of Scotland. Hope to get it out in a couple of years. We we have started welding on it now.
0: So it's a very long time that you have been doing this now. And, you know, you started when there was essentially no wind industry, and now it is this giant international billion-dollar industry. And I'm curious... If you step back from that, do you feel like you have some insight into kind of how to make big industrial change in the world? Um, Another good question. The, The
2: conditions when we created the wind industry were very favorable. There was a big pull from society. Society wanted things to happen. There was a very big support from the government sort of mentally and also to some extent economically for people to establish things. And that way we hit, without knowing it at the time, a sweet spot of making such a thing happen. But I learned a lot about what it takes to make things happen. And to a very large extent, it's about a motivation from, uh, shall we say, society. And then it's a matter of getting what we call frame conditions right. The surroundings of what you do need to be right for the development. Then you can essentially make anything happen.
0: We'll be back in a minute with The lightning Round. You probably think it's too soon to join AARP, right? Well, let's take a minute to talk about it. Where do you see yourself in 15 years? More specifically, Your career, your health, your social life. What are you doing now to help you get there? There are tons of ways for you to start preparing today for your future with AARP. That dream job you've dreamt about? Sign up for AARP reskilling courses to help make it a reality. How about that active lifestyle you've only spoken about from the couch? AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way. Connect with your community through AARP volunteer events. So it's safe to say it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, health and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org/wisefriend.
3: Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery, and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at T-Mobile.com unconventional unconventionalawards. That's T-Mobile.com unconventional unconventionalawards.
1: Visit livenation.com slash concertweek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, Owen oh, Two Door Cinema Club.
0: Now it's time for the lightning round. So I'm just going to ask you a bunch of questions now that's sort of fast and we can kind of run through them. I have a couple of Denmark questions for you. Uh, what's one thing I should do if I go to Jutland? If you go as a private individual, Yeah,
2: again, good question. Go to the West Coast and visit some of the small port cities or port towns and see how life is there. It's very different from big city life. If you are traveling in a more professional manner, make sure to go and visit a wind turbine factory or (laughs) a steel tower factory. It is They are in the middle of nowhere uh, in the flat countryside, and it's super exciting.
0: I think if I were there on vacation, I might still want to go to the wind turbine factory. Yes, you should. Yes. Are Vikings overrated or underrated?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think most of us are somewhat embarrassed about uh, having your uh, national identity resting on plunder and murder. Um, I think that they they were extraordinarily sharp when it came to their tools. Uh-huh. So they made these wonderful ships that could go anywhere. They went as far as, you know, up the big Russian rivers and down to Con- Constantinople.
0: And to North America. As and a to North, North American, America, America they came
2: to in, North America. In, in yeah. an open boat. So I think that for their skills, uh, they are definitely not overrated. For their human qualities, I think that sometimes there are a few sort of uh, compassionate uh, elements
0: lacking. Underrated as engineers, overrated as humanists,
2: perhaps. Yes, that could be a good way to put it.
0: If everything goes well, what problem will you be trying to solve in, say, five years? If everything goes well, my biggest personal ambition
2: is to make a difference on the climate when it comes to implementation. So that's actually not an engineering task. Um, that's more about trying to solve this conundrum that everybody knows what needs to be done for the green transition. It can't go too fast. It is going much too slow. How do we make that happen? And if I could, in five years' time, say there were things that happened because of our efforts that wouldn't otherwise have happened, that is, of course, would be a fantastic thing.
0: What's one piece of advice you'd give to someone trying to solve a hard problem? I think that the most important thing is that you are not
2: seduced by your own rhetoric. The most important thing when you are developing new stuff is to be honest, not only about the positive prospects, but also about the challenges. You should not fool yourself with false hopes. And as somebody also said, persistence is the biggest virtue persistence in the face of adversity, which will surely come.
0: Henrik Steesdale's company is called Stevesdale. Makes sense. Today's show was produced by Edith Russelow. It was edited by Sarah Nix and engineered by Amanda K. Wong. You can email us at problem at Pushkin.fm, or you can find me on Twitter at Jacob Goldstein. I'm Jacob Goldstein, and we'll be back next week with another episode of What's Your Problem?
1: Live Nation presents Concert Week.
0: How do you create present and future value? As a leading provider of specialized finance, operations, and technology advisory services for Fortune 500 companies, emerging growth market leaders, and private equity sponsors, cross-country consulting solves today's most pressing challenges and creates present and future enterprise value. With tailored, integrated solutions for accounting, risk, technology-enabled transformation, and transaction solutions— Cross Country works as a strategic partner and collaborative part of your team. The future ready business, insight and within reach. Go to crosscountry consulting.com to learn more.